This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. to Friend of Maryland. My name is Kat Pauze, and this is a fat-friendly space. Today on Friend of Maryland, I share the call for papers for the upcoming Fat Studies Conference. I chat with young adult author Maggie Ann Martin, and I spotlight a piece from Tigris Osborne about Black History Month and Black History Always. I'm very pleased to open the show today by sharing the new call for papers for the upcoming Fat Studies New Zealand Conference in July. The theme of the conference is Rights, Personhood, Disposability, and it's taking place entirely online which means that speakers from around the world are welcome to contribute. We're inviting papers and performances and presentations for consideration to be included in the conference. The conference provides the opportunity for academics and activists around the world to consider fat rights, personhood, and disposability. We encourage papers and performances from academics, researchers, intellectuals, activists, artists, students, in any field and at any stage of their career. We strongly encourage people to consider if their proposal is an appropriate one for a Fat Studies conference. Keep in mind that Fat Studies is not merely an umbrella term for any discussion of fat bodies. And in a similar vein, Submitters are strongly encouraged to rethink using the O words uh, in their submissions unless they're used, ironically, um, within scare quotes and, of course, needing to be accompanied by a political analysis. Now, presentation topics might include, but are not limited to, fat rights, fat citizenship, fat personhood, fatness and disposability, fatness and disability, fat indigeneity, Queering Fat, Fat Histories, Biopolitics of Fatness, Fat in the Global North, Fat in the Global South, and more. Presentations will be pre-recorded for the conference and made available to participants online on demand before, during, and after the conference for a set period of time. Presentations are welcome to be done in the speaker's native language, but the accompanying transcript must be submitted in English. If you're interested in submitting something for the conference, please do. You can always, you know, pull it later if it turns out you can't participate. If you have questions 
reach out. Our email is fs for fat studies, nz for New Zealand. So fsnz at massey.ac.nz. That's at m-a-s-s-e-y dot a-c dot n-z. You can find out more about the conference and also other Fat Studies conferences that we've hosted at the website fsnz.org. And I really hope that we're going to get a lot of great presentations from people around the world. Joining me today is Maggie Ann Martin, a young adult author whose most recent book, To Be Honest, features a fierce fat main character. Maggie, thank you so much for coming on Friend of Maryland. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored and excited to be part of this project. Well, I'm very excited to learn uh, more about your work and your most recent book. But, you know, let's set a bit of context here. Uh, Have you always been a writer? Uh, I've always loved writing, yes. So ever since I was a little girl, I think if I walked around my parents' home, I could find little notebooks stashed away of things that I had written. So I've always wanted to write books, and I've always wanted to write characters that looked like me that had their own romantic comedies, because I had never seen those before uh, growing up. And so that was kind of the inspiration for writing, to be honest, is I wanted to see a fat young adult um, navigating through life and being comfortable in her own skin. So, yeah, I, I've always I've always known that I wanted to write a story like that, but I never knew if I um, was able to or had the skill to until my um, editor, I pitched it to her and she loved it. And so from there, it, uh, it became a reality, which was really cool. So you've been writing pretty much your whole life, um, yes. but this this particular story was actually the first time that you wrote a fat main character? Correct, yes. Yep, it was the first time I really felt like I could take the leap because I had the support from um, an editor that was really excited about the idea, and I feel like at that moment, so I, it came out in 2018, and... I feel like in the years leading up to that, the space for having fat main characters, especially in young adult lit, was starting to open up a bit more with writers like Julie Murphy, who wrote Dumplin', um, and then like Becky Albertalli and her her books. Um, so it was an exciting time to be able to add to that um, conversation uh, and bring something new to the conversation as well. So yeah, it was my first fat main character and it it was a huge book of my heart for sure and I think that's I mean that's really lovely on a lot of different levels um as you said you know we are starting to see it's very slowly happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know if we think about the number of like books and even like if we narrowed it down to like the number of YA books that are published every year the number of them that actually have like fat friendly slash fat positive characters at all much less is like the main character it's it's very small <laughs> so yeah. it's a very growing very slowly but like at the same time you know when I was little because um 
I I do write um, as an, um, an academic, like so writing's a important part of my kind of job and stuff. But um, I think of myself more as a reader. Like I am a voracious reader and have been my whole life. Like I was the the kid that, you know, my parents would take me to the library and I'd get the 20 books I was allowed. And two days later, I was done with them and I needed to go back and my parents were frustrated. Um, I honestly can, like, I don't ever remember ever in my writing there being you know characters that were big and when there were they were always like the villain and that was part of their villainy was their size um or they were um the fantastical uh you know either like a non-human creature or like a fantasy creature so i could never really identify you know they weren't the character i was supposed to identify with as the the human uh the young human reader so um it's been really exciting from my vantage point to see, again, a very slow growth, but a growth nonetheless um, yes. of, of stories like about fat people written by fat people. Cause you know, you can always tell the difference too <laughs> in the same way of kind of the, the jokes and the memes about like when men write women versus when women write women. Um, so you, you mentioned a couple of names um, of, of mm-hmm. other writers uh, doing this kind of work. Uh, are there others that inspire you uh, in the work that you do, whether they be writers or um, just, you know, other individuals or uh, fake characters on screen or something? <laughs> yeah, so I love, um, as far as like real humans go, uh, Virgie Tovar uh, is fantastic. Um, I literally eat up every single blog that she comes out with and her her two books I believe she has two books out now um her book you have the right to remain fat was like such an eye-opener and like game changer for me when I read that um and I had the privilege of seeing her speak in person I believe in 2016 2017 and ever since then like I've just been following her work and she's fantastic um as far as I, I've loved seeing like A.D. Bryant become a, a bigger figure in uh, traditional media. I've loved watching Shrill unfold on screen and having such like a powerful storyline um, depicted. So um, like Tess Holiday, seeing all of her um, work as a model of being like the first, I forget, which cover she she graced, but she was the first like size 24 model to grace the cover um, of that magazine. So just a lot of things have been inspiring to me. And obviously I mentioned Julie Murphy before. So her book Dumplin' and that whole series has been huge. Um, and then the fact that that was turned into a Netflix movie as well, I think just broadening that access to even more people that maybe wouldn't pick up the book and be able to see a story like that on screen with a with a fat main character that was super comfortable in her own skin was awesome so those are those are a lot of inspirations <laughs> so um tell me a little bit more like i don't want you to like no spoilers and we definitely want people to buy the book um but are you happy to like give us a general summary of what the book's about give us a little taste absolutely so the book follows savannah who is going into her senior year of high school And her sister, who she's incredibly close to, just went off to college. And so she is home alone now with her mom, who has just gotten off of a weight loss reality TV show. Think like The Biggest Loser. 
And so you can imagine they are at odds with each other um, in that her mom is very obsessed with watching calories, um, using diet-focused language, um, trying to get Savannah to also participate in, like, extreme fitness and dieting, like, with her. Uh, And so the big tension of the book is Savannah kind of coming to terms with, it's okay for me to be comfortable in my own skin, even though, you know, the main person in my household doesn't agree, Um, which I think is a message that I've, I've heard from both teens and adults that have read the book that they were happy to see because I think a lot of times the person who influences how you feel about yourself the most is your mother. And so that was a dynamic that I wanted to explore, you know, a main character that said, like, recognize, okay, this is painful, you know, what I'm going through with my mom, but I can be my own person and be comfortable in my own skin despite what um, what she might think. So, and it also uh, gets into her mom develops an eating disorder. And so it gets into disordered eating um, and adult mental health as well. So we, we, I tackle a lot of tough subjects, but I try and mix in some, some humor and heart in there because I feel like, you know, life is a mix of the tough times and the, the funny times. So I always say it sounds more serious uh, than it actually is because the tone of it is, is usually pretty funny. So uh, it's, it's a nice mix, I, I would say. And Maggie, where can people go to get the book? Sure. So uh, your best bet is, you know, any uh, book retailers, so like Barnes & Noble, Amazon, it is on audiobook. Um, and then if your international book depository has it, um, at Target, Walmart. So really anywhere that books are sold, you can, you can pick it up. And if you want to pick it up at your library too, or request it at your library, I work at a library. So I always throw that plug in there that you can check it out at your library. Heck yeah. No, I love, I love libraries. I am, I, I, I buy books rarely because again, I, I read too far. Just, I would be broke. I would literally have no money. Um, And so I'm a, a big library person. I'm, grateful that like because I do e-reader uh, on my phone actually um, and my little library in my little town in Palmerston North a couple of years ago finally got they connected with like Libby um, oh, and yeah. you know yeah, a, a couple of good ones um, which has been really great and so yeah I, I'm all about supporting your local library That's very good. very important <laughs> Maggie it's been really um <laughs> yeah, it's been really delightful to, to chat with you today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I actually haven't read uh, this book yet, so I am super excited to get my hands on it. If there are people listening that um, want to connect with you or follow you more closely, um, where can they find you online? Sure. So you can follow me. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Maggersann, M-A-G-G-E-R-S-A-N-N. And then if you want to go to my website, maggieannmartin.com, you can find some other things. I also have a podcast about writing. So if you're a writer and want to kind of explore that too, that's on my website. So lots of places you can find me. And I, um, yeah, I hope, I hope you stick around and follow my journey. That's awesome, Maggie. Thank you so much for coming on Friend of Maryland. Absolutely. Thank you.
Spotlight today is a piece written by Tigress Osborne. It was published on February 14th, 2022 on the NAFA webpage, and it's entitled Black History Month and Black History Month Always. Quote, Black History Month is celebrated in the United States throughout the month of February. What started as Negro History Week in 1926 grew into Black History Month in the 1960s as Black pride and civil rights movements increased interest in the history of Black people in the United States and across the African diaspora. Black History Month was eventually adopted in 1976 as an official U.S. celebration. The first time I remember knowing about Black History Month, I was a first grader in a small town, Arizona Public School, in 1980. There was one other Black student in my class. We were the only Black students in our grade and two of the only handful of Black kids in the entire school. I remember taking Ebony magazines to school, but I don't remember what we did with them. The next clear memory I have of honoring Black History Month was in high school. Ebony Magazine was a star player once again, as I cut up issue after issue to make collage posters of important Black people to hang all over my school. Some were famous athletes and movie stars my classmates would recognize. Some were inventors and scholars and people none of us would have ever been exposed to in the mainstream media. Those unknown heroes were known to some Black folks. They were the reasons like magazines like Ebony existed, so we could see reflections of ourselves when other media either couldn't be bothered or explicitly made an effort to keep things mighty white. Later, I would become devoted to Essence and its portrayal of beautiful Black women and femmes. Even later, I would discover magazines like Belle Noir that featured plus-size sisters. But at the time of my first forays into planning Black History Month visibility campaigns to educate my adolescent peers, my favorite magazines were the ones aimed at teenage girls, 17 and especially Sassy. They occasionally featured Black girls and other people of color, and Sassy even named a Black girl the sassiest girl in America. But for the most part, they were assumed to be race-neutral, which in the world of early 90s publication and most media to this day actually means white-centered. Sassy had a monthly column called Stuff I Wrote, and it included lots of one-liners, jokes, and quippy thoughts, the kinds of things we'd see as tweets today. I remember my heart sank once when, amongst the witty wonderings in one magazine I thought was closest to understanding my coming-of-age heart, I saw something along the lines of, why do they get to have an ebony magazine? Wouldn't it be racist if we had an ivory magazine? At the time, I didn't know how to articulate my disappointment. Now I do, for the most part. I was reading Ivory Magazine every month on their pages. How dare they blame Black people for having the audacity to carve out a space for our stories, when all they did most of the time was maintain a space for theirs. Now, I'm a middle-aged Black mixed-race woman. I have a degree in Black studies. I spent years working with Black and POC youth. For a decade, I ran a Black-centered plus-size nightclub event. I've been a fat activist for about 14 years. In all of those spaces, the number of times I've seen and heard resentment about Black-centered anything from white people who exist at almost all times in white-centered everything is outrageous. Throughout my life, I've heard the same argument about Black History Month that some random teen writer penned for stuff he wrote. It goes like, if they get to have a Black History Month, why don't we get to have a White History Month? We do get to have White History Month. All of us gets to have it, and we have it 12 months a year. 
In fact, we don't just get to have it. We have to have it. And for most of us, for most of our lives, we've had to have it in whatever ways were most comfortable for white people. As you read this, white people all over the country are trying to pass legislation ensuring that white children will be protected from learning history in any way that might make white children uncomfortable. What do they imagine the comfort level for children of color has been all these years? They don't imagine it. It's irrelevant. As an adult, I take Black History Month seriously. I take Black History seriously all year, as we should. But just as there are many things we do all the time, but with extra zeal in certain times of concentration, you'll find me during February searching out stories I don't know yet, going deeper into stories I do know. It is not always comfortable, but that's what we have to do if we're going to actually learn from history. I want to celebrate Black resilience and Black brilliance in every way possible. And sometimes that includes looking at the uncomfortable aspects of history, including the uncomfortable realities of why we don't see Black people in certain spaces. Why weren't there more Black people in my teen magazines? Because there weren't more Black people working on my teen magazines. Why? Because there weren't Black people in the spaces they were being produced. Why? Because Black people didn't have the same opportunities to be in those spaces. Why? 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 I take the same approach when trying to piece together the true history of the role of Black people in the documented, organized, size acceptance, fat acceptance, fat rights, fat liberation movements. Why weren't there more Black people in NAFA when I got here? Why weren't there more Black people in NAFTA 20 years ago, 35, 50 What about other fat-lib spaces? Where were the Black folks? Some key moments we identify as the roots of fat-lib are really, really white moments. And throughout the history of the documented organized fat activist movement, what's often not documented, especially before the modern era, are the Black people who were there. I've been going through old NAFA newsletters from the 70s. So far, I've seen one visibly Black fat person in the photos. I haven't tracked them down yet, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to. Maybe this person was having the time of their lives at NAFA events. Sometimes I've had great times, despite being the only black person in it. Other times I've been incredibly uncomfortable, but made the best of it. And other times I've just been uncomfortable. I felt all those things as a black person in NAFA in the 2010s and 20s, so I can imagine what it would have felt in NAFA in other decades. We see Black leadership and other social justice movement at the time of NAFTA's founding. What does whiteness have to do with why we don't see Black leadership or even much Black participation in early NAFA? What does anti-Blackness have to do with it? Is there simply more urgency of other issues for Black folks? Or is there discomfort in these spaces for Black people? Or are Black people simply not interested in NAFA? These questions feel rhetorical, but they're not. If you're wondering how we got from my first grade memory of Black History Month to the difficult questions NAFA and other fat lib spaces have to answer about lack of intersectionality in the history of the fat community, here's how. Even though I don't remember the specifics of what we did with those ebony magazines, I remember being asked to bring them to school because my teacher incorporated Black experience in what we were learning. In today's vernacular, she said that Black Lives Matter. In the summer of 2020, NAFA joined many other organizations and individuals in saying the same. Some of those folks moved on from the sentiment as soon as it stopped trending, 
we didn't. We still have a lot of work to do to make NAFA a truly intersectional endeavor, and we're working hard at it. Stay tuned to our social media this month to see Spotlight on Black activists and creators, as well as webinars through the year featuring Black folks and Fat Lib, whose work we support and you should be supporting. Learn from the resources at our monthly anti-racism resources feature in our newsletter and our website. Read past and future Black-centered items on our blog. Wherever you find us, watch for opportunities to support Black folks in the fat community. And don't stop checking after February is over. We have to care about Black history every day. We have to care about Black futures every day. End quote. Thanks for listening to another episode of Friend of Maryland. Friend of Maryland is brought to you by Manawatu People's Radio, triple nine AM. If you'd like to contact the show with questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for topics or guests, you can email us at friendofmaryland at AOL.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Closing the show is Queen Latifah with Listen to Me. Queen Latifah in the house back for 1992 and 93. On through the decade. Come on.
extraordinary piece of feline. See, I know the book because I read it twice. If I bite the hook, then I'ma pay the price. Mama taught me black was beautiful when I was young and told me all about where babies really came from. So you can hit the door with the theory that all black women are hoes. Hear me know. Starring, you're listening to me. The people down in New York, they're listening to me. The people in Athena, they're listening to me. The people in Boston, they're listening to me. The people in Bermuda, they're listening to me. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.